new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you doing today? <laughs> Sean, I am good today. Today is a great day. I, uh, I woke up with a smile on my face. Sometimes it takes a little while for me to get going, but today's a, it's a good day and I feel uh, motivated to do this podcast and excited to sort of hear some new stories I've never heard before. I think, you know, when it comes to podcasting, there is something that gets my mojo moving. Like when, when I wake up, I'm like, today's a podcast. Excellent. I'm so super excited about it. So this is like every other time when it comes to that. So, uh, Sean, how about you? How'd you wake up today? I woke up good too. I, uh, I feel fresh, uh, you know, had a little play session with my dog rumble and, uh, wait, you have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been listening to the podcast, yes, you probably already know this and I'm sorry. I apologize for people if I mention him too much, but, uh, I'm not really sorry, but it's, uh, you know, it's part of my life and I like mention him, but, uh, it was great. You know, I woke up and probably because uh, I knew I had a podcast coming on and, I, you know, we love talking to people, like you said, and especially people um, from the area. And it, it, it's a, just a different type of uh, intimacy that goes on people from the Niagara area where we are from. And uh, this individual, let me get into it. This individual's name is Mahogany Hines. She is an active and ardent member of the palliative care community. She currently volunteers her time to act as the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario's Policy and Political Action ENO for both the Niagara Chapter and Palliative Care Nurses Interest Group for the past three plus years. She is also sits on the Canadian Hospice Palliative Care Nursing Group as a Secretary Treasurer. She currently works as a registered nurse at McNally House Hospice in a casual capacity, as well as working full-time as a palliative pain and symptom management consultant throughout the Niagara region. Mahogany has numerous certifications in palliative care and writes a blog called The Art of Dying. When she is not advocating for greater quality and visibility of palliative care, she is refing roller derby. Mahogany, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Doing great. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> did you wake up in good spirits today? Yeah, I did wake up in good spirits. It was a little early. We had to go into the office today, so it's okay. I got some coffee in me and I'm good to go. <laughs> nice. That's a pretty lengthy bio and it really showcases everything you're doing in the field of death and dying. And I want to get into that. But before... Um, that I want to get into your roller derbying because this is interesting. I've never done it myself. And I actually had when I Googled uh, yesterday online, like the rules. <laughs> and so could you talk about like how you got into that? And really, for those people who don't know what it is, what is it? Yeah, I'd love to talk about roller derby. So I actually uh, rest all weekend. On Saturday, I roughed a triple header, so it was a lot of skating. So what I do is I'm actually a roller derby referee. And basically, the rules of roller derby are um, for women's flat, tra flat track roller derby. In Niagara region, we have the Niagara Roller uh, Roller Derby League, and they go by the Garden City Rollers right now. And at the Hag Bowl, we have a flat track set up. And basically, what happens is, is there are four blockers on each team. And there are two jammers, and the jammers are the ones that wear a star on their helmet. Their job is to get through the pack, hopefully unscathed, not typically so, but getting through the pack and collecting points. So every person's hip on the other set, uh, the other team, 
essentially they collect points for every set of hits that they get past. There's lots of, it is a full contact league. There are no elbows, elbows, um, like old roller derby that you used to see with like skinny mini Miller and all of them. It's different than that roller derby. It's, it is still full contact, but elbows are a penalty. So I would blow my whistle and uh, yell at them and tell them to, to get to the box <laughs> and serve their penalty <laughs> if they use elbows or if they trip people. Basically, the blocking zone, zone that you're allowed to block within is what I like to call a hospital gown. So as a nurse, of course, I go to that. But it's uh, shoulders and up and all the way down the front to the knees. And then in the very back between the shoulder blades, essentially that is a no blocking zone. So if you hit somebody there, that's a back block. And yeah, the goal of the game is to essentially get as many points as you can. And that's it. That's interesting. So you're a ref. How come you're not playing? So I actually have an injury. So I've been playing, I've been part of the roller derby community for, oh my goodness, almost six or seven years now. And I started when I was in nursing school and I had a pretty catastrophic fall. Sadly enough, the story was not as good as somebody hitting me and me getting a massive injury, but I shattered my elbow. Mm. So I have three plates in my elbow um, currently still. So my range of motion is limited and I couldn't get cleared to play again, uh, full contact. So I ended up learning the rules to ref and I actually like it even more than playing. I enjoy it so much more than I ever did playing. Wow, that's uh, that's in- that's interesting, and yeah, I know injuries can definitely do that sometimes. Uh, it's unfortunate, but at least you get to still be a part of the game that you love, and you get to ref, and I'm sure there's a thrill in that. And you're also kind of working, you're kind of exercising along with it, right? Because it's the skating yeah. is kind of difficult. I went roller skating recently a couple months ago in ha- Hamilton Pier. Yeah, and, the uh, Yeah, it was amazing. It was incredible. Uh, I didn't yeah. realize it was that popular. Um, yeah. There was some really cool music going on, a lot of a lot of people skating, a lot of amazing skaters. And as I'm doing it, you start to get tired, and you 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 know my hips and my thighs and my you know, <laughs> quads and my shins. And but I felt great because like you know I felt like I was working out too and kind of trying to skate. <laughs> <laughs> It's a wonderful workout. It's an awesome cardio workout. Um, It's great for endurance. But the other part of roller derby that I really love, especially as a ref, is we get to skate the entire game. So the skaters get to sit down between each bout and each jam, but we don't get to sit down. And there's seven refs at any given time. So we're skating the entire game. And like I said, this weekend, I I ref for a triple header, so three games. So I skated for three full games. So I definitely made up for my cardio this weekend yeah that's probably a a sport where refs have to be in shape as well kind of like soccer i guess where they have to do a lot of running as well but yeah you don't usually see that uh where refs have to almost be in equal shape Uh, it's probably equal shape as uh, the athletes Um, yeah yeah what uh what did it do for you because i know like joining sports and and competition it can really add something to your personal and social life you know, maybe it felt good to hit people and, and no, don't laugh. I, uh, <laughs> I, play, I remember playing, uh, no, I, totally agree. <laughs> I remember playing football in high school and, uh, that was, uh, it was a odd cause I'd never really, you know, hit people before then. 
Um, but I, when I got involved in football, it felt good. And I think that's a good outlet for some energy. Uh, what you, what did you feel after, uh, joining it? So part of the reason I actually joined roller derby was because one of my best friends had started a league. I, I lived back in Belleville and she started a roller derby league there. And I was like, oh yeah, I always loved contact sports when I was younger. And I used to be quite athletic and I thought it would be a really good outlet. I was not a good skater when I learned how to skate. Um, and I still argue I'm not a great skater, but I'm learning still. <laughs> but yeah, it's a wonderful outlet. And it, it's really good, especially because I'm a nurse and I deal with some pretty heavy topics pretty regularly. It's a really awesome outlet to just have something outside of, you know, the dying death community, palliative care, end of life care that separates me from it because I, I am very invested in the community and sometimes it's hard to extract who I am from what I do. Yeah, I get that. I get that vibe a lot. I, um, I joined softball. Well, before softballs, I joined a house league basketball along with Joshua and that, and then softball after. And it'd been a while since I'd played something, you know, usually the last seven, eight years, I was just working, going home, doing whatever, going to the gym. It felt great. It felt great to get out there, be in a team environment and compete. You know, not obviously like hard, but like, you know, still a little bit of competition can go a long way. And and that really felt great. And it added to my personal life where everything else got better and, and a little bit happier because I think because I was fulfilling a side of me that I had neglected. Yeah. And, and I think we need that, right? So like I always like to say, we, we call ourselves Team Vibra <laughs> because we were stripes. So we always win <laughs> at the end of every bout. Like I never know who really wins because I don't watch the score. It really is irrelevant to me. I just want to make sure everybody is safe um, and not hurt. But yeah, ultimately we always win. <laughs> so <laughs> it, we're, we're at 100% right now when <laughs> for, for wrestling. <laughs> But um, yeah, it's great. And then I, like my husband and I, we do rowing together as well at the Henley, uh, just recreationally. And then I go to the gym. So it gives me that little bit of something outside of work and, you know, your normal day to day. The video I watched online, the names of people were like made up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that is that common or was yeah. I watching something weird? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, we we uh, it's funny because when I see people outside of roller derby, I often refer to them as their derby name. And and my <laughs> rowing crew is actually no, no exception because the vast majority of our rowing crew used to be part of the derby community as well. So I remember one of the girls on our team, her last name is Ratri. And so we call her Rat was that was her derby name. <laughs> and then somebody somebody called her Jen, and I was like, who is Jen? <laughs> yeah, no idea. <laughs> I didn't know, right? So seeing people outside of different contexts can be really uh, baffling sometimes. <laughs> Josh, do you want a roller derby name? Ooh. Yeah, I wonder what that would be. Yeah. Black Spice? Think- I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I like that. <laughs> What's awesome. uh? <laughs> What's uh, your uh, your name for so roughing? I've I've actually had three derby names. Um, so my first one was Giraffe Kickstack because I love dinosaurs, <laughs> and then I switched it when I turned into a ref to Dreaded Medic, and then I actually ended up changing it back just to Stacks. 
because everybody called me stacks anyways. <laughs> it was just easier. They tend to go back to whatever your original one is or whatever one rolls off the tongue. So my derby name is stacks. That's funny. And Sean, what would your derby name be? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Well, my last name is Ram, so that's kind of like he kind of had to play with that. I don't know. I don't know. Ram truck. You know, and my move is just to like... You're, you're a blocker. <laughs> you're a blocker. I have Definitely to be a blocker. a blocker, of course, of course. I'm not a fast person. Yeah, I would be. It would be ram truck, and then my finisher is just kind of like ram into you. <laughs> I'm not sure we have finishers. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you have names, so you know. Not quite wrestling. Same. <laughs> That's good. Maybe this could be a new incorporation into the roller derby world. You know, think I'm about sure it. We're always. We're always taking uh, uh, comments and suggestions. I could be called the grief dream. Yeah, oh, I like man. it. Wouldn't that the be grief cool? nightmare. Oh, the nightmare. Yes. <laughs> 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 trying to make them cry. Oh, I love uh, it. That's good. All right. So I'm glad you're, <laughs> you're in such a fun league where you can like make your own names and stuff. Uh, I always played basketball. That was my thing. And so, yeah, I also understand the value of sports and just being part of a team and being around people outside of your work environment is, I think, very important. And you get to talk about different things. So for you, since this is sort of your outlet, what got you into wanting to work with End of Life? Because it seems like your whole life is about that. And then you have <laughs> sort of the roller derby on the side. So like, what got you into this and how, why did you fall in love with it? Because most people are afraid of it. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's true. So um, ever since I came into nursing, I actually came into nursing with the intention of being a palliative care nurse, which was uh, definitely rare. It was not something that was quite common. I was always begging for like palliative care education and opportunities when I was on the floor. But the reason I actually came into nursing, so I actually have a, a degree or a diploma in fashion design. Um, and that was my first diploma. And then I lived overseas for a couple of years. And then when I was living in New Zealand, I was like talking to some of my regulars. I used to work in a pub and I had some regular customers and we were standing around and talking. And I was like, oh, I think I'd like to go back to school one day, but I don't know what I want to do. And I, I like people. I like dealing with people generally. <laughs> and, um, they were like, oh, you know, like you could work in healthcare. I thought I wanted to be an anthropologist. And then I was like, what am I going to do with an anthropology degree? <laughs> and one of my regular customers that used to come in kind of every couple weeks, once a month, she worked as a nurse on a cruise ship. And she was like, you'd be a great nurse. And I laughed in her face. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think so. I was really bad at science in high school and I really didn't take a lot of math. And she's like, no, but you have the personality. So it kind of got my wheels turning. And then one of my other regular customers had a mom who were, uh, lived in a dementia facility and she had stage four vascular dementia and she had had a fall and broken her hip. And as we know, people with dementia often don't remember that they've fallen and that they've had a fracture. So she invited me to go out and see her for a few days a week and bring her snacks and treats and stuff and just keep her company because essentially what the fear was was that she was going to stand up again and re-break her hip or make it worse. 
And the alternative was to have her restrained. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. I did it for three months and I loved it. And I made a really amazing connection with her mom. She made me laugh. Uh, she had a really dry sense of humor and a dry wit, and it was just beautiful. And initially, I came home thinking I was going to work in dementia care. And then I ended up working with a woman in private care who had Parkinson's and dementia. And one of her care providers was like, oh, this is palliative care. And when I started learning about what palliative care was, it just really deeply resonated with me. It was, I had actually never experienced a death myself. I had never seen a dead body. I had never come in contact with one. Everybody who had died in my family knew not to invite me to funerals because that's not how I choose to remember people. And I never really wanted to go to a funeral because the thought of everybody I love being sad was really too much for me. I was a very emotional child. So it was something that I really hadn't experienced, but the more I learned about it, and then when I was accepted to nursing school, we learned about palliative care, and I was like, that is the essence of what nursing really is. I genuinely believe that palliative care is what nursing should be. It's person-centered. It's including the family. It is talking to them as a unit of care, and it's really guided by that person, and it's meeting them where they are in a way that's so beautiful and organic and raw. I love it. And when I was a nursing student, I had a patient who had died. It was the first death I had ever experienced. And I was asked if I wanted to help prepare his body and clean his body afterwards. And I did. And I knew in that moment that that was exactly where I belonged. Like palliative care is 100% where I belong. They are my people. (laughs) I love caring for them. I love caring for the families. I love the family dynamics. They're challenging and weird and wonderful and amazing. And it just really is such a humbling and and it it really is a privilege to care for the dying. That's that's an amazing, amazing kind of entry into what you're passionate about. And I'm... And it's really cool that you tried it out and as you went along, you kind of felt comfortable and and knew through trying it that this is what you wanted to do. What do you think that quality was that that nurse saw in you? Honestly, I don't really know. (laughs) I I was always like, I I was a pretty good bartender. (laughs) 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 But I I liked talking to people and I liked hearing people's stories and I liked, you know, I love that people welcome you into their lives in really interesting Mm -hmm. and unique ways and they open themselves in a vulnerable way to you. And I think that's such a privilege in, in any field, really. When somebody opens their life to you, when they're feeling vulnerable or they're feeling weak, I think we need to treat it as such. It's humbling. So I I don't know what she saw in me, but I'm super grateful for it because I can't imagine working in any other field now. Yeah, that's interesting, and I yeah I think you're you, you that makes sense. There was like someone who's able to sit with other people and who's interested in other people sharing parts of themselves and their lives. You know that, that yeah I could see that being a very important aspect if you're doing what you're doing because you also you know you probably 
went through it and, and said, it's it's probably one of those fields where you're either in it all or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with that. Interesting. I'm curious, what was it like seeing the dead body for the first time? Because you avoided it as a child, you said. And so mm-hmm. what was that like for you? It was really interesting because the the shift that I worked, I, I spent most of my day trying to track down his family and I couldn't understand why they wouldn't come in. So I was trying to call them and saying like, oh, he's doing very poorly. Like, I think you should come in. I don't think we have a lot of time. And then it, the the really interesting part was it was the first time I had ever drawn, drawn up an opioid to give to a patient. So I had done it in lab, but then I went to draw it up to give him the medication. It took me like probably 15 minutes to draw up. I had to try and get the pulls out and I had, you know, my teacher, my preceptor looking over my shoulder. So I was nervous and I was shaking. And and then I walked into the room and I remember looking at the patient and I could hear the oxygen machine, but I couldn't hear him breathing anymore. And looking at my teacher and looking back at the patient and looking back at my teacher and she's shaking her head. And I was like, oh, and I felt really sad. I felt profoundly sad but also profoundly honored. So I I couldn't believe I was in the presence of somebody who had died. But I was also really sad that I wasn't present when he had died. And I found that really challenging. It took it took me some time to kind of work through those emotions. But I found a lot of solace and comfort in preparing his body after. So cleaning his body and removing the site. And and taught like I, I thanked him after, and it's something that I do always in my practice. Is I always take a moment and thank the person for letting me take care of them because it, it really is a profound experience. It's it's difficult to kind of put your finger on the words, but it, it is such a grounding experience, and it makes it really real. And I don't know, it, it wasn't scary. It it wasn't. The the scary part for me was drawing up the med at the time. <laughs> it it wasn't scary at all. It was peaceful and it it was just like you kind of walked in and you knew. You were like, yeah, he's not here anymore. I think it's beautiful how I could feel the gratitude you have. And when you said, you know, you say thank you to your patients. Is that something they taught you in school or is that just something that came out because of who you are? Um, I just, I felt the need to say it. So it wasn't necessarily something that was taught in school. Mind you, I, I do go into nursing classes now. And I do try and teach that when I get the opportunity. to, <laughs> Because in my job, I do spend a great deal of time with healthcare providers. And I, a good part of my job is actually educating other healthcare providers. But it wasn't something that I had learned. It just felt like the appropriate thing to do in the time. Because he gifted me this opportunity that really not everybody gets the experience to have, especially as a student. And I, I think it's really necessary. And for me, I, I was begging for the opportunity. So, uh, because often as a nursing student, they're, they're fearful, right? Because you don't know how somebody is going to respond. And it, it does take a certain level of precision and skill to be able to sit with somebody who is dying. And understand that sometimes doing nothing is doing something. It's very challenging to get into that headspace because we 
are very task focused, I think, when we're new, you know, fresh nurses. We want to do and we want to make things better. But what is better? Yeah, what is better? I'm just thinking about the job and how it could possibly be maybe taxing on your emotional state and psychological state. What is it about that that makes it maybe hard and difficult to do? I guess because you're expending a lot of emotional energy. And what do you do to balance that out? And how does it play into your personal life? It it, it definitely can be taxing. Um, Sometimes it, depending on the situation, right? So I, I still work casually bedside. And when I, I do have the honor and privilege of being with somebody while they die, and there's a lot of an emotional investment ensuring that the family is going to be okay, because part of that person's comfort comes from knowing that their loved ones are going to be okay when they're gone. And that's part of our responsibility. We transfer that care from the person to the family as well. So it's not just the person's care, but also the family. And it's really whoever they identify as family. So it might not be their biological family. In order to try and, I guess, metabolize that, there there's lots of different ways that I, I've learned that people have like taught me or that I've experienced myself. So I have had uh, some deaths that really hit me close to home. Like they, they really have a profound impact on me. And if I feel the need to cry, I cry. Um, there's absolutely no shame in crying. I think it's very therapeutic and healing to cry. So I've normally my rule of thumb is the family shouldn't be consoling me <laughs> as a healthcare provider. But I think it's nice for families to see that their loved ones had such an impact on you as well. Mm. So sometimes I'll cry. Uh, one of my residents uh, used to sneak wine in to her room <laughs> and her family. I don't, we, we didn't know who was sneaking in it, but she used to sneak it in. So the day after she had died, um, I went into the bedroom. I had my cry and I pulled myself together. And then when I went home, I actually ended up buying that wine and I had a glass in her honor. So I find different ways to honor the memories that people have shared with me and honor their life in a way that is meaningful to me. Obviously, I can't really come home and necessarily talk to my husband about it. I can say, oh, I've had a hard day. And he has a pretty good idea as to what that means. Um, But I cuddle my dogs. (laughs) My dogs bring me a lot of comfort. (laughs) Um, I'm very fortunate. They're very sweet and cuddly. Uh, and then I do roller derby. I write my blog as well. So writing my blog actually has been a really therapeutic way for me to try and metabolize some of my own grief. Yeah, that's sounds. I mean, all those things are amazing. And I mentioned that because I also follow you on Instagram. And I really like what you do with what you're posting. And I like you know, the message, if they're if not, you might not even be intending to give out a message like that. But it tells me that like, well, this person's into appreciating the little things, you know, the gratitude and the self care, mm-hmm. they're all wrapped up in there. And because what you do, you can't necessarily, you know, what, what any of us do, it's hard, you know, you can't separate things and put them into boxes, they all leak into one another. So mm-hmm. I, I, and I really appreciated what you're doing because it's such a, 
it's like you're you know manifesting and some positive energy by whatever you're posting and it might be as simple as you know having a coffee i know you love coffee having coffee today and <laughs> enjoying it right <laughs> i really do love coffee <laughs> <laughs> noticed well yeah like you know the appreciation and whatever you know whatever you write under that it kind of uh it's a little bit different than maybe the the average instagram post what does that do for you and and especially and explain like how you post oh that's very kind of you thank you for noticing it's one of those things so i every couple of years i do something called like the the gratitude project or 365 gratitude and i thought i i honestly don't remember where i saw it i'm sure i saw it on instagram or on facebook but it was taking a moment to be grateful for something because in my readings and in my education, I've learned that some ways to metabolize grief is to actually express gratitude for the things that we do have. So I try to take moments and acknowledge them, sometimes out loud, and say, you know, even to have running water. Like I have clean running water, and there are people in this country that don't have clean running water to have access to, I can drink my water out of a tap. And I think it's important and it, and it has an impact on the way that we perceive our own lives. We can, you know, be sad for all of the terrible things that are happening in the world, or we can take moments and express that gratitude in ways that hopefully translates to other people to take those moments. And finding gratitude is really important, I think, in helping to heal because in my field of work I mean time is of the essence like I see so many people that are lying on their deathbed but they're so grateful and not always sad there are many people that have said like I don't regret anything and oftentimes the, the things I hear are people regret the things that they didn't do not the things that they did so I think it's just really important to take those moments. I try try and do it through my Instagram. I mean, sometimes it's like, you know, selfie, shameless selfie <laughs> day. It happens. But it's something, I don't know, it just helps me to have like a visual account of the things, the things that I have in my life that are really amazing and help to contribute to my well-being. Yeah, well, you know, and some... Look, it's sometimes there's pages that are random and whatnot, but you know, the, the I got the feeling from that and the energy you're outputting is is really helpful because you know it, whoever's looking at it, you know, if I'm looking at it, it, it makes me smile because I'm looking at that and saying, wow, you know, this person is in this deep world, and yet they're coming out here and they're they're saying how appreciated they are, and that's a great philosophy to have because you know it's all relative. You know, we're I'm rich here living in Canada. Not really, but like, you know, we're rich because we have running water and we have a, a warm bed. I have air conditioning, you know, I have luxury of a dog. I have a good friend and all these things, you know, we're wealthy. And sometimes we yeah. forget those things. And I think maybe what you're doing, it, it also puts it into perspective because of persons on their deathbed. If they're go going, if they're sick, if they're struggling, you know, it does, it, it does make you say, you know, I should be appreciative because, this person doesn't have the faculties or doesn't have the things that, that, that I have right now, you know, and then I think that's a beautiful thing that, that just, 
it just comes for full circle into how to, you know, have a happy and grateful life. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think too, looking at people who are either end of life or have less than you in different ways, and for them to be grateful, it really puts a spotlight on where you are mentally. Um, I'm guessing that's where you, you get a lot of this from is you can see these people and they have the lack of health, lack of time. They can't do things that you can do and they're grateful. And it makes you really rethink how you're looking at life because a lot of times I know like my mind wanders and it looks at all the things I don't have or all the things I wish I could do um, rather than all the things I can do. And it says, as Sean said, it's very relative. It's like who's around you can teach you what to look at. And so I'm thinking the dying is really helping you with that gratitude. Would that be true? Yeah, honestly, the the biggest gift that that the dying gives me is the opportunity to look at my life retrospectively and go, wow, like I come from a place of great privilege. And that's pretty humbling, right? Because what am I using it for? And I mean, I'm a huge advocate. <laughs> I spend a great deal of my time, you know, in some political spheres advocating for, you know, equity and palliative and end of life care. But it's because I've seen people work with so little and still be so amazingly grateful and thankful for what they're receiving. And that just always kind of makes me stop in my tracks and go, wow, like, you know, I might have thought I was having a bad day. Maybe it's not so bad. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing that we get to talk about this. I'm inspired by you and what you do. And <laughs> and I'm feeling more grateful than I did starting the podcast. So my day just got a little bit better. Amazing how that works. <laughs> uh, so I do want to talk. <laughs> uh, I do want to talk about the um what you do with the pain and symptom management can you talk a little bit about that as being a consultant and what are some of the common issues and concerns that sure. the dying have or even the family has sure yeah absolutely so um my job is a palliative pain and symptom management consultant so i'm a registered nurse um that's my background and i have some certifications in palliative and end-of-life care but basically what my job is, is it's split between two different things. So half of my job is education. So I do formalized education for healthcare providers, for volunteers, for chaplains, for administrators, basically anybody who wants to learn about uh, hospice palliative care, I can educate um, and facilitate conversations with. The other half of my job is consultation. So I work with um, 16 long-term care homes within the Niagara region. And my partner covers the other 18 in the Niagara region. So between the two of us, we cover all of the homes, the long-term care homes. And basically what we are is we're a resource. So we're not an emergency service, even though occasionally I will come out in an emergency situation. I typically try not to. Um, because my job is to build capacity among healthcare providers and hospice palliative care and pain and symptom management. Essentially, my job is to work myself out of a job. Unfortunately, I don't foresee that happening anytime soon, which is I'm grateful for because I love my job. <laughs> but it, it's essentially I come out as a consult. So I make some, some sometimes suggestions on medication changes or interventions, so non-pharmacological interventions. So if somebody's having shortness of breath, for example, I might suggest 
turning on a fan, putting a cool compress on their trigeminal nerves, so across their cheek, to help stimulate that feeling, that sense of breath, um, and get rid of that sense of breathlessness. And then I might make some suggestions on medications that we could optimize that might help uh, relieve that suffering a little bit more. The other part, uh, the, so sometimes the calls, I guess, uh, that I get called on or I was called out this week, actually, for an end-of-life consult. The family just wanted to make sure that the, the loved one was getting everything that they could, that they were getting the best care possible. And um, so I came out and I talked with the family and I supported them. And, and the nursing team was doing a fantastic job. They really were. They were doing a great job. Sometimes they just need that reassurance. They want to know that they can do, they're doing everything that they can. So sometimes they'll come out and do that. I do uh, talk about advanced care planning with family members. Sometimes I'll come out and do an in-service for the family council teams and educate them on what advanced care planning is and it is not. <laughs> um, and what pain might look like in somebody, say for example, with dementia or somebody who is nonverbal because it's gonna look a little bit differently. They're not gonna say, ouch, I'm in pain. <laughs> it might look different. So things like that are kind of just like a smattering of what I do. I do a lot of in-services as well with long-term care. Wow, that's interesting. That's a lot of a lot of different stuff. And I'm guessing that, like we could go into every one of those aspects a little bit more. Um, but just due to time, I think it's uh, I say it's great. There is one question I, I have of you. I'm not mm -hmm. sure this answer myself, but I know assisted dying, um, there was a mm -hmm. lot of news coverage on that the last couple of years. Is that something that Ontario has, or is it something that people are still talking about? So medical assistance in dying, so that's the terminology behind it. Medical assistance in dying is available in Ontario. It's not at this time considered to be part of the palliative care approach. That being said, however, it doesn't mean that we can't be providing palliative care if somebody is going to receive medical assistance in dying. Because really palliative care starts from diagnosis through to bereavement. So making sure that the family is okay after. Um, so if somebody was to say elect for medical assistance in dying, which is a procedure um, that's performed either by a physician or a nurse practitioner, and they are the only ones that are able to do so, and the things about medical assistance in dying is the person still needs to be of sound mind at time of the, the last administration of the medication. So they need to be able to say, I of my own volition am choosing to elect for this procedure. I, I realize that I, by taking this medication, I will die, it will end my life. And this is what I choose. Up to that time, if they lose that capacity, they no longer are eligible for medical assistance in dying in Ontario. But it is something that is happening in Ontario, yes. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I never really talked about it with anyone, but you just hear it on the news and stuff. And yeah, thank you for clarifying yeah. that. And um, yeah, and I'm guessing there is a lot of pushback on that as in different countries and different places around the world. So um, one thing, I, the last thing before we move to uh, your grief and different losses is how is your math and science now compared to when you started? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I can neither confirm or deny. <laughs> um, 
I, my science is quite good. So the one thing that I learned and I would encourage anybody to do is as an adult, if you decide that you want to go down the path of being a nurse or a physician and you were not good in high school, remember that the things that you were learning in high school may not be the things you're going to learn in college or university. So when I went back to school, I did end up taking a pre-health course, um, which had science, you know, chemistry, biology, English, math, all of it. And I was quite nervous um, because I did not do well enough in high school. <laughs> but I actually ended up like getting 90s in my classes. So because it was pertinent to what I was learning. So I, it was all relevant and all made sense as to why I was learning it. So I wasn't learning about parabola because it wasn't relevant to my practice. But I was learning, you know, basic algebra again and trigonometry and, and things that were pertinent that I was going to use. So it made sense as to why I was using it. So I actually highly encourage people to not be dissuaded by how you did in high school because we are different people than who we were in high school. I hope I am. <laughs> um, but continue learning challenge yourself right the best way to know if it's right for you is to do it and try and you'd probably be pretty surprised at the abilities that you do have <laughs> so if you want to be a nurse and you sucked in high school at science and math still pursue it as long as you like people if you don't like people my rule of thumb is you probably shouldn't work in the nursing industry <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> That that's a great point, and I've experienced that in my own life. I think when you when you're immersed in a topic, that's easier to learn it. And sometimes in high school, you're you know it's one subject, it's maybe an hour out of your day, and then you forget about it. Maybe you do homework and you're cramming for a test and whatever. But an example of my life was uh, I shifted from uh, food industry to pharmaceutical, and I was it was really scary. I mean, they hired me, but like. It's scary because I'm like, I don't know any of these things. I don't know all the different forms of penicillin. You know, I'm seeing terms like, you know, clithromycin and amoxicillin. <laughs> and, you know, in the first meeting, I was like scared. And I think a lot of people that prevents them from going into jobs that they might think they like. But, you know, after being immersed in that industry for so long, you end up picking it up. It's a language and you have to give it time and immerse yourself. And then eventually you start speaking that language as well. So I think that's a great tip and advice that you're giving other people. And, and again, you know, hopefully people aren't people are scared sometimes to make those changes or learn something new, even at, you know, an older age. But I think, it, you know, you got to give yourself a benefit of doubt and not be hindered by let's say roadblocks you put up, like math is another one. I, I wasn't that great at math in high school. And then it took me to get out of high school and I took one calculus class at university and it, I actually did okay. And it changed everything. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm not that bad at math. Yeah. <laughs> that is interesting. Like the tales we tell ourselves yeah. in our identity and like who we are. I used to always say I was bad at English. And I just finished a PhD. And so it's very, it's very hard to say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like that was my big fear is like writing and stuff. But, you know, like when you have a desire or a drive, you have a goal in mind. It's interesting how things change, like how you look at yourself changes and then also how well you do in that course or that topic changes too. So, yeah, I think it was great advice. And yeah, like with all of us, we've just like once 
you tra- you label yourself as you're not good at it, but then all of a sudden you're good at it, and you're like, wait a second, so now who am I? <laughs> like exactly. you and cooking. Oh yes. <laughs> I thought I was a really bad cook until I did it, and then you see the right teacher, and then all of a sudden you can do it, and you're like, wow, and you yeah. get inspired by yourself. That's for anyone out there who's not good at cooking. You, you know, you got to stop telling yourself that. You just gotta, you just gotta figure out a few dishes and then go from there, and it, it'll open up doors for you. Are you good at cooking, mahogany? I'm not a bad cook. Baking, not so much, because I'm not great at following rules. <laughs> same, same. It, it's chemistry, right? It's essentially chemistry, and chemistry was not my stronger one. I was much stronger in biology. <laughs> See, I so, rephrase, I I rephrase that, and I say there's not enough room for me to be creative baking. So I just, I just don't even want to go there. <laughs> Yeah, mine is just the, I never listen to the rules very well. (laughs) You're putting in three eggs, two cups of sugar when it says one. All right, cool. Says the rep. eh? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's funny. All right. So I think this is the time to talk about your loss. So you mentioned as a kid, you had different losses that occurred. Were they like monumental to you or did, was like the first real loss like that you really felt was your patient? Yeah, to be honest, I I didn't have a lot of loss. I guess I'm very fortunate in that sense. My grandparents, my my mom's side grandparents are still alive. And I didn't have a lot of loss for people that were really close in my immediate family. I don't have siblings. And we have a relatively small family and I'm the baby. But most of my family is still alive which I'm very fortunate for. But I had some kind of like distant cousins. My step-grandma died when I was in my 20s. And my mom told me over the phone, she asked me if I wanted to go to the funeral. And I was like, nope, thank you. And I went to the tattoo shop and I got tattooed instead. <laughs> so that that was my coping mechanism. <laughs> so, which has often been like, if you see me, I have quite a few tattoos. And uh, that actually helped me to heal. So that's part of my other coping mechanism, my therapy, so to speak, is I get tattooed and I remember in those ways. And so have you ever had a, any pets die? Yeah. So um, when I got back from uh, New Zealand, my mom and dad, we had a family dog, Angel, and she was like 15. 16 and she was not doing well and eventually I had turned to her and said I think I think it's time to put her down because she's starting to have seizures and I was like this I don't think is quality of life for her so I went with my mom and my dad could not come and we went to the vet and we held her when they they put her down and that was probably my first experience like intimately with death but as far as human beings go, the first person that I ever experienced that was dead was my patient. Wow. What was that like seeing your dog suffer and uh, then having to decide that, you know, this is this is it? It was hard, but I felt like it was the right thing to do. Like in my house, we I had grown up with dogs. They, my parents had lied to me and said one dog was sold to a farm and the other one ran away. <laughs> I do not advocate this practice. (laughs) Um, Actually, it's something that I talk about in our Fundamentals of Office Palliative Care course. I talk about not replacing the goldfish 
So I, I think it's really important that we have these discussions because it's a lot easier to express that loss than the loss of a, a family member, perhaps to a child, right? So it's still hard. Loss is loss. It doesn't make it any less painful or extreme, but it, it felt like the right thing to do. It was hard, but I felt like it wasn't her anymore anyways was the other piece of it because like I don't feel like my dog at the time was you know living her best life so it it didn't seem like she was all that happy she just looked like she was suffering to me yeah and and you know it's it's our responsibility as owners as as parents to kind of make those tough decisions at that point and uh no matter you know how difficult it is because you know our pets look up to us and you know whatever whoever we take care of looks up to us to kind of make those decisions wow yeah. that's uh do you did you get a tattoo of angel no i didn't actually do not <laughs> there's have I, one. there's an idea for you <laughs> beautiful i love it i was like i do have wings tattooed on my arm because I was told when I was in nursing school that we had little baby angel nurse wings. <laughs> and now I have one tattooed on my left arm where I have my fracture uh, and it has a bandage on it <laughs> because it's broken. But yeah, that's, that's a good idea. I mean, I already have a couple of uh, ideas. I, I do have a tattoo that commemorates my, my English bulldog right now, Brolo. Um, because she has a 22 tattooed on her stomach, which is how we got her. So both my husband and I have a number 22 tattooed on us. Why does I uh, have 22 on his stomach? I have no idea. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, is it a tattoo or is it like, it's a, is tattoo. It like a birthmark? Oh. oh, no, it's a 22. It's tattooed on there. I think you know how they used to do it in their ears? For whatever reason, the breeder that we got her from, she had a 22 tattooed on her stomach so now wow. we have 22 tattooed on us as well wow, solidarity <laughs> what and tell me about your tell me about your babies tell me about your other one how old are they so, what are their names uh, so rollo is my english bulldog and she is seven and a half and my baby girl <laughs> and uh inca is our uh she's a mini bull terrier and she's a holy little terrier <laughs> and she is uh three and a couple of months old wow. so they're both quite small but they're definitely we're not planning on having children so these are as close to my parents are getting for their grandbabies <laughs> <laughs> those are two of my favorite breeds and i have an old english bulldog so very similar to your english bulldog um, but bull terriers are fascinating to me. <laughs> they are like, uh, man, if boxers are the clowns, bull terriers are like also clowns. Yeah. Oh Clown my goodness, yeah. Clowns, but like also like energetic balls of fury sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> she, so we like to call her Inca the terrible. She, <laughs> she is honestly a two-year-old in a dog suit um, and a land shark. So she she's just, yeah, full of beans, full of beans, and both have such distinct personalities. I love them so much. They make me very, very happy. Could either of them ever be a therapy dog for the dying? 
So I, I have thought of that. So I would really love to train uh, Rolo to be a therapy dog and Inca in her later years. She still has way too much energy um, and she likes to she likes to kiss with her teeth um, <laughs> right now, which is not really ideal <laughs> for, you know, uh, such uh, somber kind of interactions but um definitely i'd love to train rollo to be a therapy dog i think she'd be a great therapy dog her favorite thing is to like lay down and cuddle so she sleeps probably 21 hours a day so she's pretty good she's a heavy sack of potatoes um but she definitely is they both have extremely sweet temperaments i would love to train them so that's amazing if there's training please feel free to reach out to me because i'm happy to do the training <laughs> with them <laughs> i would love to do that with rumble unfortunately there's a stipulation that if you give your dog raw food they can't qualify for the program really yeah, yeah. it's there it's an overly cautious fear of uh e coli transfer hmm. yeah i know a little bit odd to me but um what tell me one last thing about your dogs what is it that they gave you what is it what do they do for your life i tell this all the time that you know he really changed my life and that uh he really they really, really imposed himself on me but you know it, it's it's <laughs> that's the it's the only way to say i call a bulldog you know a bully they just impose for themselves sure. on you but you know he added a lot of love into my life and where i wasn't really I didn't have that. I didn't have the lovingness and, and to someone to take care of and, and to, to have that back and forth. And so you really softened, uh, let's say, those edges in my life. What did your dogs, Rolo and Inca, do for you and, and, and your husband? So I, I'm very fortunate. I have lots of love in my life. I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate. My husband is the calm to my storm and fury. But... Rolo just she gives me so much comfort just in knowing that there's always someone to come home to that is so happy to see you. She does this little butt wiggle that just makes my heart explode. And Inca brings me so much laughter. Honestly, she's so sweet and she is such a goofball. She just makes me laugh. And I mean, she teaches me patience, honestly, <laughs> between the <laughs> yeah. two of them, both bullies. I mean, yeah, if, those of you who do not know the bulldog breeds, they are stubborn <laughs> and they are bullheaded. They are very yeah. aptly named and sh they both teach me so much patience and they're, but they're just so, so sweet and forgiving and, you know, no matter what happens, they just want to make you happy. And like what else in the world is so selfless and giving than a dog? I really don't know. Sorry for all the cat people out there, but <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dog person <laughs> through and through. <laughs> and bully breeds are, are where my heart is. I can't imagine having any other breed of dog again, to be honest. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, when they follow you around, you know, my dog follows me around all the time, wants to be in the same room as me. Um, you know, I know his signs when he wants to play, he takes the my ball, takes a ball and jams it in my leg. <laughs> <laughs> all these things, you know, and they're expressive. You know, I didn't know this before I had it. This is my first dog. I didn't know how expressive they were and, and how 
you can read things off a dog through eyes and body language and all these different things that if they don't can't talk, that's fine. But it's amazing. And you get that communication, that back and forth and, you know, when they're happy and what makes them happy. And it's a good relationship. And patience is, is you're absolutely right. It's, you know, patience and uh, just that's a that's a great virtue to learn. I definitely learned uh, some of that with my dog. No doubt. <laughs> No doubt. All right. I have a question. So you've suffered some loss and you've lost, I'm guessing, more patience than one. Um, now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, have you yeah. ever have you ever had a dream of anyone who has died from patient or to the dogs or your other uh, your your grandmother? Step grandmother? Um so as far as loss goes, uh I, I know I've had dreams about patients before. Uh, I'm not sure that I could specifically remember because I'm one of those people when you wake up and if it doesn't strike a chord with me in the morning I tend to forget but I know I have woken up and and I've I know I've also woken up and known somebody's died so that's the other piece I think of it is when you care for somebody especially if you're caring for them for quite a long period of time it's almost like you you have this connection to them and I know I've woken up and been like I think they're gone. Like it almost like a premonition. I don't know if that's exactly what it is. I, I don't have the answer to that. But um, after my uncle died, so recent, more recently, my great uncle uh, died in January. And I went home. Uh, I rushed home the day I found out he was now palliative, which I'm air quoting, but he was actually end of life. He was actively dying. And I spoke to the nurse on the phone and I walked her through an assessment that I would do. And I was like trying to get an idea of how long it would be. And um, I finally got home and I, I told my aunt to let him know that I'm coming. But if he has to go, that's okay. And but I'll, I'll be there with her to try and support her. And he was still alive when I got there. But but barely. And he was what I would call imminently dying. And I stayed with her for probably about six hours. And then I, I went back to my mom's house because I had a feeling that she, he wanted only her to be there. And I, I very staunchly believe that people choose who is in the room and who is present and who is not present when they die. So I left and I, I got a call in the morning that, that he had gone and he had died. And I went back and then a few weeks later, I had a dream and I saw a chickadee in it. And my uncle used to call all the girls in our family like, oh, hi, chickadee. And he's like, oh, my little chickadee. So I feel like that was him. And I feel like it was him letting me know that, you know, he's okay and that that he's in a good place. I, I don't know where that place is. I'm I'm not a religious person. but. Yeah, it, and every so often I, I have a reoccurring dream about my grandma that she's teaching me how to knit. <laughs> and I never, like I tried to learn how to knit when I was younger. Now my grandma is still alive, but she has vascular dementia now and she no longer speaks. Um, and I, I very deeply miss, I grieve her often. Um, I am in grief for her because I very much miss our conversations. and. We had very similar political leanings, so I'd really like to know where she would 
stand in this world right now <laughs> on many things because uh she she's she's a firecracker and i i grieve her even though she's still alive um so sometimes she's able to tell me but i kind of forget what her voice sounds like how to knit so like oh i dropped the stitch and and pearl one knit too you know so those are probably the two that i can think of off the top of my head that and, and the knitting dream i have pretty regularly every few months or so or if i go to visit her i think if i go to visit her it stimulates something in me that's so interesting i'm actually i'm fascinated by the fact that you dream of her more healthy like your your, your grandma and to hear her speak a little bit too. And I'm like, wow, like I would love to do a, a research project on that topic itself and see if other people are having these types of dreams to almost help them through that transition that I said, like you're grieving the loss of who she was and how difficult that is. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's my coping mechanism to some degree. I think it's a bit of a, a coping mechanism. I mean, I'm not versed especially well in you know psychology and dream interpretation <laughs> i will be the first to admit <laughs> i've owned a dream dictionary once in a blue moon but i don't know how how accurate hopefully, those are. hopefully you burned it <laughs> <laughs> like i don't have it anymore <laughs> now i have you as a resource <laughs> yeah it's interesting well you're not choosing your dream right so it does reflect no. your waking life but that's the amazing part of it it's like it's it's your own body's way of helping you through. And I think that's amazing. It's not like you're choosing to cope this way. It's just, it's happening and you're a part of that. And so I'm glad you're having those moments and you're getting to reflect and, and remember her voice a little bit more. That's one of the things actually when my dad died, I, uh, I thought about for a while is like not hearing his voice anymore. And I, some of my dreams have him talking, which is always a beautiful thing for me because I've always feared forgetting forgetting that yeah so definitely. wow well, that's that's amazing it's amazing that you sort of like you have some of those things and um yeah and i like too how you're saying you have like this invisible cord with people i think mothers probably have that with their uh children too or fathers you're almost like there's a there's a sense of how they're doing in a way and you have that with some of your patients so you know sort of when they're dying. The other thing that it could be is you have a dream that you forget where basically they tell you that they're dead or that they're dying. Um, or they'll be dead today kind of thing. And you just forget about it when you wake up. So that's also um, a possibility because I've heard other people come on the podcast, other people just in uh, everyday conversations tell me that they have these grief, these dreams of the dying person and they didn't know they're dead until they woke up which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Well, it's so. nice of them to let me know. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> yeah. sometimes don't I know. don't get to know, right? Yeah. So sometimes, especially as a consultant, I don't always get to know when somebody has died um, mm. until maybe I come back into that home for another consult and I ask, oh, you know, how is so-and-so? And they're like, oh, they've died. <laughs> I'm like, <Right>. oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so that's very interesting. I, I love that you spoke about the voice as well, because the one thing I probably miss most about my uncle, and I, I do have a little bit of a regret because I should have known better, <laughs> but I wish I recorded his laugh. 
Mm-hmm. I would give anything to hear his laughter again. I would, it just lit up a room. And I know it's something that would bring so much joy to the rest of my family as well, because it's something that he was always doing, <laughs> was laughing, and he'd get into this laughing fit um, because he had had a stroke before and he had frontal lobe damage. And that was actually how it manifested for him was he'd get into like a laughing fit and he couldn't get out of it. <laughs> and then he couldn't like walk himself anywhere because he'd just be laughing. <laughs> But yeah, I would give anything for that to hear it again. That's cool. Cause like one of our, our final questions is what dream would you want to have? And so this is basically what you're setting up is you want him to be laughing. Could that be true? Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, and be able to record it would be great <laughs> or just, <laughs> but not, not forget those voices. I think that's the other thing is like, there's something so intimate about somebody's voice and their mannerisms and the, their inflections on words and to be able to hear like my grandma's voice or my uncle's laugh again would be the best hmm. the best <laughs> do, you, do you have the same thing for uh your pets when they like bark or speak like is that still is that a longing or no is it just with humans with dogs honestly yeah. i think it's a it's a smell thing so mm. m- I don't know, like, you know, the Frito paws that sometimes people say, or like popcorn paws, they smell like a certain way. There's a certain scent to my dogs, but I, and I, as somebody who works in, you know, the the dying and death industry, the palliative end of life care industry, I often think about like when my dogs die and I, like, it makes me very, very upset. like Rolo, we just had a biopsy done a few weeks ago because she had a growth and I was like kind of dreading it and I was like trying to prepare myself but luckily it was benign I'm so grateful (laughs) thank you (laughs) because I was like I'm not ready (laughs) but we've also talked about like what we want done with her body after because I want her articulated I want her skeleton which I know is weird for some people but for me, I want her around. I want her ears preserved. <laughs> like, well, I we know, a, yeah, <laughs> we know a person who makes uh, pet jewelry, pet memorial jewelry, and um, you know, it's it, before we had her on the podcast. You know, the thought would have been a little odd to me, but now I get it. And what you know, they she'll um, she'll essentially put the fur into like some nice jewelry pieces or. Uh, whatever bone she's pretty good at doing her job um but yeah uh, i totally understand what you're talking about i've talked about it multiple times on this podcast actually um that dread of like <clears throat> knowing that your dog can die you know soon because it's just how their lifespans are and um l- most dogs have some sort of let's say health issue condition that's mm-hmm. kind of with the breed and it's just a part of it um so i totally get that and it, it sometimes it's very scary you know if you it, like for me if i think about it a lot it, it's it becomes you know all encompassing and i think um i had to kind of figure that out and just not i guess 
it i think it for me it's okay to kind of think about yeah he's gonna die and all that but not go into the well how's it gonna happen you know he's gonna hit by a car or this or that i think for me dwelling into that is kind of maybe too much but yeah i totally get the idea of like you know dreading that and and going Mm -hmm. through it also smell uh when we're talking about smell I, I once in a while I'll smell my dog and it just brings me back to when he was a puppy. Cause it, there's it's certain true. smells that it's just the same. It's the same. And it's like, Oh, that's his smell. And like, that's an, that's an aspect I think. And hair, you know, there's so much hair around <laughs> Live in a hair factory, here. hair factory over <laughs> here. But uh, that's the thing that I could see if he passed, I would, I would miss. And that would, that would be hard just finding hair and be like, Oh man. Yeah. They're so entrenched in our lives, right? Right. Ugh. And my dog snores like a truck. (laughs) If you can't hear, she's snoring right now. She's. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm glad he didn't, uh, he doesn't have that. But, uh, you know, little things like, you know, hardwood floors, you just hear them click clack all the time. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, and uh, these are the little little things that you also appreciate out of that relationship, and what make it all worthwhile. So you know, I I, I don't know. What do you think? I think maybe I don't know how to approach that. The, I mean, like the dread and stuff like that. They're not. You're not dead till you're dead. Is what I always yeah. come back to right? right. So like they're not there yet. So sometimes I take those moments, and you know, I just take an extra second and give them a snuggle <laughs> in the morning or at nighttime or if I'm sad if I have a loss that's really hard like I can confide in my dog and like yeah. I can tell them you know and sometimes saying things out loud is needed and therapeutic so yeah maybe it's a good all my secrets <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe it's a good reminder of if I am fearing the death and thinking about it to appreciate the life and say you know we still have moments together. We still have this time and to enjoy that. I think yeah, I'll do that. Take, give them an extra snuggle, right? Sometimes you give them an extra treat and then you feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So this has been a, a great episode and I really got a lot out of it in the sense of the biggest thing for me was to remain in gratitude and continue to look at your surroundings and see how how life isn't there to bring you down but there's a lot of life that is meant to inspire you and you're one of those people that i'm glad is in our world that is inspiring people from those who are living and those who are dying to just live better lives and to reflect a little bit more on who they have become and what they've done in this life so thank you so much do you have any handles where people can follow you sean mentioned you had a fit you had an instagram page so you want to shout out some of your stuff where people can find you Sure. Thank you. Um, so my Instagram is actually nurse underscore sex, S-T-A-X. And my uh, blog, The Art of Dying, uh, you can actually find it at dyingdreads.wordpress.com. I do the free thing because I'm really amateur blogger, but it really is just an outlet of my thoughts. If there's anything that anybody wants to discuss, I'm happy to discuss it or explore it further. My last one was is it okay to blow grandma up? And I talk about <laughs> postmortems and what what to do with bodies after they die and what are some of the options that we have available. I have weird and eccentric tastes. 
So <laughs> feel free to ask questions. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure to come on. I've wanted to come on since I met you at the International Death Symposium. <laughs> and hopefully we can connect soon. I'd love to talk with you further about some other things. And you can let me know what my dreams mean. <laughs> well, I'm guessing, too, your patients and people may may have their own dreams that come up and they want to share it with you. So, yeah, anytime uh, we'll get together and we'll chat some more about this stuff. For sure. Over coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, Mahogany. It's been a wonderful conversation and it's great to know someone in the community who's doing um, some real positive work and helping out the community at large. Thank you. All right. So you can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams and at the Grief Dreams podcast. And as always, we like to end the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Just myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.